0: Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful start to the new year. Before we kick off today's episode, I wanted to reply to many of you who have been reaching out asking me how we can practice together in 2024. Now, I'm not running as many public yoga classes, but I am running a workshop and a retreat in the new year. Now, if this isn't something that is of interest to you, feel free to skip ahead to today's episode. But if you are interested, stay tuned. The first workshop I'll be running is called Inward Intention, and that's on Friday the 19th of January here in Melbourne. This workshop is designed to help you get out of your head and into your body so that you can set your intentions for 2024. This will be a restorative 90-minute yin yoga practice, and I'll be guiding you through a series of postures to help you open up the energetic channel from your head to your heart. I'll then be guiding you through a visualization and meditation that will help you unlock your deepest desires and bring forth your intentions for the new year. You'll leave this workshop with a deep sense of relaxation and clarity, as well as a goodie bag from our friends at Good Living Only. If you're looking for a more immersive experience, then my Autumn Renewal Luxury Retreat is for you. This three-day, two-night retreat is for anyone who wants to slow down the pace of life and connect inwards while enjoying the incredible amenities that the luxury accommodation has to offer. This retreat is designed to be taken at your own pace with all activities being optional, including daily yoga and meditation practices, a breathwork practice, and an incredible fire ceremony. It's the perfect escape for a couple, a group of friends, or even a special trip with mum. Spots are filling fast for both the January workshop and the autumn retreat happening in May. So if you'd like to register, head over to my website, ashbutters.com and follow the prompts at the top of the page. I can't wait to see you there. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviors in relation to mental health, trauma, and addiction. My name's Ash, and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Jeremy Lipkowitz. Jeremy is a meditation teacher, coach, and porn addiction recovery expert on a mission to empower men to reclaim their minds, thrive in relationships, and live with integrity. Featured in places like Men's Health Magazine and Live Strong, his impactful work includes helping men overcome porn addiction and live with greater purpose. Having triumphed over addiction himself through mindfulness meditation, he's shared techniques globally, including at universities, recovery centers, and organizations such as Microsoft and the United Nations. Trained as a Buddhist monk in Myanmar and as an ICF certified executive coach, Jeremy blends science, spirituality, and self-compassion for self-mastery and high-performance living. So dialing in from Cape Town in South Africa, I'd love to welcome Jeremy onto the show. Jeremy, welcome to Behind The Smile. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great, Ash. I'm happy to be here.
0: Excellent. Now, before we go any further we have to say with our audience, we had this interview scheduled for before Christmas time. And then I got this amazing email from you saying, Hey, Ash, is it okay if we reschedule? I'm about to head into a 10 day silent meditation retreat. Oh my goodness. You have to tell me what was that experience like?
1: Yeah. So it's, um, it was actually my 18th time doing a silent meditation retreat like this. So at this point, they're not kind of like mind blowing for me. The, the first one I at did all. was, there's still a big deal. I mean, it's still a very intense experience. It's still uh, very challenging. So to give your listeners a little bit of, of understanding what I'm talking about, it's a 10 day silent meditation retreat. So there's no talking, there's no reading, there's no writing, you're not journaling, you have no electronics, you're not supposed to make eye contact with the other participants or communicate in any form. Um, And so it's really 10 straight days of doing nothing but meditation and having no distraction. Um, No talking, no reading, no writing, nothing. And you're practicing a very particular technique of meditation called Vipassana. In the West, we call it insight meditation. Um, But it's a very secular approach to meditation. It's really just paying attention to what you're experiencing in your body in your in the environment around you Um, and they are some of the most challenging things i've ever done but also some of the most rewarding because you really have no escape from what you're experiencing you know a lot of people think that the hard part of these retreats is not talking but in fact not only is that one of the easiest parts you actually come to enjoy the not speaking aspect it's like oh i can finally have a few days where i don't have to talk to anyone i don't have to answer any emails or worry about what i'm going to say in this conversation you really just get to be by yourself the hard part is not having any distraction from the craziness that's going on in your mind um all the just you know all the shit that goes on in your head the regrets the anxieties the frustrations the conversations in the past the times you messed up um but you get to practice this really beautiful technique that's in, in many ways healing your mind and, and for me is so related to addiction recovery, this practice of v- Vipassana. We can get into what Vipassana is if, if you want. Um, but in many ways, it's about unhooking yourself from craving and aversion, from you know running towards pleasure or running away from pain and just learning how to be with what's going on.
0: It just sounds fascinating. I had no idea that you weren't allowed to read or journal. For some reason, when I assume silent meditation retreat, I just think no talking, like you said. It absolutely blows my mind that there was no, no writing or no reading either. Talk about having to sit in the shit and feel your emotions. Wow. As somebody who I know absolutely, I've become so cognizant in my sobriety that I used alcohol as a way to distract from my uncomfortable feelings. And now these days, I talk about it a lot on the podcast, I use other things. So for me, the number one go-to these days is actually work. And I probably Mm -hmm. have swapped my alcoholism for a bit of workaholism, which, you know, there's an awareness around it, but I certainly see myself doing it. What are some of the things that you find yourself going to instead of using porn or any other vices?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, I'm so glad you brought this up. Because a lot of times, you know, when I bring up porn addiction, or someone talks about alcohol addiction, and we tend to think it's these very compartmentalized addictions. But when you really start to understand the way addiction works, you realize, you know, we're all addicts, every single one of us is using some substance or behavior to escape our pain and to run away and to numb out. And you know, we can break free from our original addiction. And oftentimes we move in healthier directions. You know, like being a workaholic is most likely a healthier addiction than being an alcoholic, right? Um, for me, you know, sugar is still a huge one that I'm working through. Like food is a huge source of, of kind of emotional coping and um, self-soothing. And so for me, food is one. Um, validation. Is one you know external validation wanting to be liked by everyone wanting to get approval Um, there's so many ways that i still kind of escape and numb out and and try to control my experience um and you know just going back to this just to say one thing that's to me one of the real beauties of these retreats is you know it's you you're not allowed to work, you're not allowed to watch Netflix. your food is very controlled like you don't get to choose. There's two meals a day, there's no snacking. Um, it's you really have to sit with your shit and learn how to be with the discomfort of boredom, the discomfort of restlessness, the discomfort of all the different discomforts that we tend to run away from. so it's such a a great way to look at. The way we're addicts.
0: And in that 10 day period of time, tell me, I'm going to imagine that the intensity is almost like a wave. For those that are watching, you'll see my hand doing this wave motion at the moment, where I I can only assume. So I'd love you to clarify for me is the hardest part sort of towards the middle of the 10 days, or like how does it go? Does it, I just, yeah, I've got to get my head around it.
1: It's, It it can be anything, you know, sometimes. So again, I've done this now 18 times. Um, Sometimes the hardest part is in the very beginning. You know, it's just like an abrupt change from your day to day life to go from 100 miles an hour to zero. Um, Sometimes the hardest part is in the middle. Sometimes the hardest part is at the end. There's no way of knowing when the hard part is going to come at any moment. You know, I remember being on a retreat. It was another 10 day retreat. And The first nine days were just smooth sailing. You know, I had done already a dozen or so, and I was just doing so great the first nine days. And then the day before we were about to leave was the hardest day. It just hit me like a brick. And so you just never know. And that's part of these retreats is also getting in touch with kind of the uncertainty of life, the impermanence of, you know, anything can happen at any moment and everything is always changing and to not get attached to thinking you know the way things are going to be.
0: And so tell me, what are the benefits? There must be something, there must be a pot of gold at the end of this experience for you to put yourself through it 18 times. What What, yeah. what do you experience after this?
1: Gosh, there's, there's so many benefits. It's hard to nail it down to like, okay, this is the main benefit. Um, one of, I guess I'll just kind of start saying what's on my head. One is just You get a a detox from your life, you know, just a time to break away from your devices. You know, especially with me, you know, my history with porn addiction, digital addiction is still something that's there also, you know, Instagram, my email, and we are so connected to our devices that having 10 or 11 days to disconnect and reset is so beautiful. Um, You get a new perspective on where you are in life, what's important to you. Uh, that's part of the benefit also. It's just that perspective of saying, okay, can I see things a bit more clearly? Um, Another one is just, you know, at this point, a a friend was asking me, uh, like, why do I keep going on them? And in some ways it's, it's like general upkeep, you know, it's, it helps me realign and make sure that I'm on the right track. Um, If I've gotten off track, can I get back on, you know, the path that's important to me? And then it's just doing the work, you know, it's, Part of this practice is like strengthening these muscles. One of the important ones we strengthen on these retreats is equanimity. And equanimity is this ability to be with either be with what's difficult without running away from it, or conversely, to be with what's pleasant without grasping after it. You know, because a lot of times when we're in the context of something that feels good, we kind of say, oh, I want more of that. want more of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm And that's the addict mind, you know, and so learning how to be with both of those experiences to be with what's pleasant without, you know, chasing after it, and how to be with what's unpleasant without running away from it is a mental trait that you can grow. It's, it's a quality that you can strengthen through meditation training. And so part of it is just like, okay, can I keep strengthening this muscle?
0: And how similar is that then to a parigraha, this idea of non-attachment?
1: I'm not familiar with a parigraha. Is that like a...
0: Yeah, so it's one of the yoga yamas and niyamas in Patanjali's yoga sutras. And it, it reminds me a lot of what you were just sharing then, this idea that you want to wear life like a loose garment and not be too attached to anything and to understand that everything in life is impermanent. And when we embody life from this place, life is seemingly in more of a state of flow because you're not trying to hold on Of like I really relate to before getting sober having to control every area of my life and now I mean gosh I can still fall into that habit but when I'm able to step back and almost like observe and be a witness to the experience rather than feeling like I'm entrenched in the experience like it's so much more freeing.
1: Yeah it it sounds like it's the exact same thing you know one of the one of the key pivotal moments in my life was realizing what suffering is and where my suffering was coming from and what suffering is is that state of of attachment of wanting things to be a certain way so either wanting things that you don't have or you know something that you you enjoy and you want it to stay that way forever or conversely there's something you do have and you don't want it and you're pushing it away and so this this practice of non-attachment of saying okay like That's where my suffering is coming from. And if I can learn how to be more at peace with the way things are, I can reduce my mental suffering. So it sounds very similar. I think one caveat or kind of, it's not a caveat, it's more of a a nuanced understanding is sometimes people can take non-attachment or detachment too far or misinterpret it. And, you know, you see these kind of uber spiritual people who are just like, it's all okay. Nothing matters. Like it's all impermanent or just be detached or, and it's like, we have to have a balanced approach. Like if we have a family to take care of, if we have a job, you know, we need to make money. We need to, you know, care for our bodies and say, Hey, this is important to me. And so just having a little bit of a balanced approach and saying, yeah, okay. There's things I I care about and things that I, I want to take care of, but having a healthier more balanced approach to it
0: yeah absolutely I love that oh my goodness we've gotten straight into it I'm looking at and I'm thinking oh my gosh I want my I want the audience to get to know you Jeremy so before we go any further I'm going to ask you some super simple questions to allow our audience to get to know who you are now you live a really exciting interesting life so I would love to know firstly where were you born and where do you live now
1: I was born in Daly City, California, uh, just near San Francisco, but I grew up more in Santa Cruz. So my parents got divorced when I was three, and I mostly moved um, with my mom, who was going to school at the time. So kind of Santa Cruz, the Bay Area is is where I'm from. Right now, where I live is a complicated question. Um, I hate the term digital nomad because I just... I'm not I don't want to be nomadic like I like to actually spend like six months here or six months there but I have quite a few different places that I spend time so Bali is one of them Amsterdam right now Cape Town Um, I do I am very fortunate and blessed to have a life where I have the freedom to travel and, and go different places.
0: Mm. and what is it about travel and you know rather than setting your roots say in your hometown where you grew up in California what is it that makes you want to see the world and expand
1: yeah well the thing is I actually want to set roots and so this is kind of a big big thing that I'm working on is I I want to find my place where I can set roots I just haven't really found the right place yet and for me a lot of it's around community um, finding a place where I can be active you know there's few things that I'm looking for, and I'm still trying to find that right place. And maybe my life will be kind of having, you know, roots in in three places, Cape Town, Bali, Amsterdam. So, but what I do love about travel is just getting to see different cultures and experience different places and enjoy the food and the music and the weather.
0: Oh, I absolutely relate to that. My word for 2024 is freedom and, you know, it, it incorporates so many aspects of my life, but one of them definitely is to spend a month in Bali this year and to be able to pick up and move and work from all around the world because it's just something that I find is like it's part of my heart's yearning. I totally agree. I think setting roots, having that foundation is really supportive and it's really important, but I also love the freedom of being able to get up and and experience this one beautiful life that that we all get. Tell me, what does an average day look like for you? Because again, I don't think this is like the average day for most people.
1: Yeah, I would say there's the average day for me involves a lot of um, movement, you know, so I love going to the gym. Exercise of any kind is is super important to me. So um, I usually go to the gym more towards the morning and it might be the rock climbing gym. I do a lot of bouldering. It might be a paddle court, um, something I've picked up recently, or just the gym and lifting weights. So I I love movement, um, coffee, planning out some kind of content, whether it's a podcast episode or, you know, reaching out to someone or making kind of social media content and then, uh, coaching calls with my clients. And so those are interspersed throughout the week and, and random times because I have clients from all over the world. And sometimes I have to have a call at, eight in the morning and sometimes I've called it nine in the evening and sometimes it's in the middle of the day so those are kind of sprinkled throughout my week uh, and I just I take them when I need to and yeah my days are very simple exercise meditation in the morning working with my clients yeah I I think that's it you know I'm a very simple person in some ways I
0: love that and I imagine that simplicity is probably part of your recovery which we'll talk about more in a moment. Now Jeremy I've asked you to bring in a photo today. Now this photo is from a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile so you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world but the reality was you were struggling on the inside. Could you please describe for our audience what does the photo look like and what was going on for you at that time in your life?
1: Yeah, so the photo is uh, with me and, and a friend, and it was when I was in college. You know, a lot of my addiction was was around my college years. Well, th- just to give a sense of the photo, this is me and a friend, and I'm holding a beer, and we're on a houseboat, and in Davis, California, there was this big party weekend called the houseboat weekend where everyone would kind of go to this lake, and there would be hundreds of houseboats, and everyone would drink. I think it was one of the like Labor Day weekends. And essentially, you know, for me, it was in college, there was a lot of escapism. You know, I was getting blackout drunk all the time, you know, every weekend. Um, there was a lot of uh, porn use and escapism through kind of pornographic imagery. Um, also kind of sex addiction as well, like sleeping around, very promiscuous. And I presented this front of being very happy, very social, Um You know, I I learned how to keep my feelings hidden. And so everyone thought I was this, you know, happy, easygoing, very social person. Um, But the truth is I was very isolated. I didn't know how to be vulnerable. I didn't know how to express feelings. And I was experiencing a lot of loneliness, I would say. You know, it's like feeling of being an outsider, the feeling of not fitting in, um, dealing with also the addictions to to alcohol, to porn. Um, But these were things that I always kept hidden. You know, I've I've told this many times on my own podcast, but even after I broke free from porn addiction to the time that I could talk to somebody about the fact that I even watched porn, it took me six years. So it took me a long time. Even after I was completely free from porn, it was another six years before I could actually even open up to another human being about the fact that I had ever even watched it. And so for me, it was there was so much shame around things I was feeling: shame around my porn use, shame around my my loneliness, shame around my insecurities, and the fact that I was presenting this confident front but really wasn't feeling that confident. So there, there's so much going on, and I think a lot of people can. Yeah, I don't think my story is is very unique. I think so many men, particularly, we we don't know how to be vulnerable and we hide. A lot behind a facade whether it's behind the smile or behind you know kind of a I'm an accomplished successful businessman type of persona we hide a lot of our feelings.
0: And this reluctance to come forward to talk about your experience or share your story was that associated to the stigma do you think that comes with porn addiction because for me I feel like it's probably one of the more stigmatized addictions out there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of the more stigmatized. It's one of the less well understood ones. There's a, just, there's so much shame around, you know, it's very interesting that sexual shame is one of the strongest sources of shame for us. And so any kind of addiction around sex or sexuality, you know, it, it kind of brings up this feeling of, oh, I'm a pervert. I'm a monster. Um, you know, it's, I'm not a religious person, but I do find it very interesting that like in the Bible, like on page two or whatever. It's like the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they ate the apple of wisdom or whatever is they covered up their genitals, right? It's like, there's that shame around our sexuality that goes so deep. And it's one thing to admit like, okay, I'm, I'm a former alcoholic. I'm a former drug user. But when you admit, hey, I'm a former sex addict or I'm a former porn addict, there's this feeling like, oh, people will not trust me, people will run away, people will think I'm a monster. So I think at the time, it wasn't a conscious like, oh, this is a stigmatized addiction, and therefore I can't open up about it. It was just so much internalized shame that, you know, this real feeling of I'm unique, I'm broken. This is, you know, a dirty part of who I am, and I can't let people see it.
0: Tell me when did porn first become a feature in your life? How old were you?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to actually know exactly when, but I remember you know, it's like the first kind of things that I was getting introduced to were very innocuous and and innocent really. It was like the lingerie catalogs that would come in the mail, like the Macy's catalog or the Victoria's Secret catalog and natural curiosity of sexual interest as a young boy you know I would kind of start looking at those um comic book characters were also kind of very enticing to me you know they're very like attractive and usually wearing you know very tight-fitting clothing or and so it was very early maybe seven eight nine years old that I started kind of engaging in that way Um, and then you know, slowly over time, like downloading photos on the internet and it's back when you would, oh you would download. Yes. Yeah. And it would literally like, you know, you come piece running. by piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You, you hear that AOL dial up sound.
0: Yeah. We're mm-hmm. of a similar vintage.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you had, to I mean, you had to like download a photo without even knowing what it was. And then it was just like, you know, it would slowly over 10 minutes, you would get a photo. Right. Um, and you know, and that evolved, you know, and it it slowly internet started getting faster. And by the time I was in college, it was, you know, tube sites and high speed internet porn. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, I was watching it every day in college. But and by the end of my time in college when I was a, a senior, it was it was every night for at least an hour. You know, sometimes it would be kind of a longer session, two hours. Um it could go longer. Sometimes if I was really hung over like on a weekend and just laying in bed and I could watch it for hours and hours, just multiple times. Um, and so it just, it's one of these things that I've talked about. It's like, if you've ever had the experience of gaining weight slowly over a long period of time, you don't really notice it, you know, because you see yourself every day in the mirror. You don't notice the change, but if you look, you know, from one year to the next year, you can see the big change. And it's the same with, with porn over a whole lifetime it's like you don't really notice how it's growing because it's just a part of your daily routine and for so many men it's a part of their nightly routine or daily routine since they're eight nine ten years old and so we don't even know what it's like that life could be without this thing so it just kind of slowly creeps into who you are
0: can you describe for me, like, what what are the negative impacts of that? Then, because you know, what someone might think that you know, watching an hour of porn of an evening, you know, it's not hurting anyone. It's not that harmful. Like, what are the actual impacts psychologically, emotionally, yeah. spiritually?
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So first, we can kind of just kind of call out and maybe put to put to the side the the whole conversation that we we can and should have at some point around the connection between the porn industry and sex trafficking, between the porn industry and the mistreatment of, of, of sex workers or actresses or actors, because that is a whole conversation, like the topic of, well, it's not harming anyone. It's just untrue. There's a lot of people being harmed by the porn industry. There's a lot of overlap between sex trafficking and, and the porn industry that you just don't know when you log on to a porn website, you don't know if what you're watching is an actress who really wants to be there versus someone who is being sex trafficked. Um, so there's that whole conversation that can and should be had. I personally don't have anything wrong with the idea of porn, the kind of just as an idea of watching someone have sex on a, on a screen. To me, I'm not, I'm not a religious person in that sense where I think, oh, this is a sin. Um, so, for me, a lot of the consequences are more about how it impacts you as a person. Uh, and there's so many interesting ways and one of the one of the difficulties with porn addiction is a lot of the consequences are subtle and downstream, meaning that you know when you're an alcoholic, you feel the the hangover the next morning. If you're a drug addict, you notice those consequences right away, and you know, this is because of that drug I just took this is because of that substance I just ingested with porn it's like stuff that builds into your life over over years where it's changing your relationship to other people it's, it, you are starting to objectify people more starting to objectify yourself it's changing your, your kind of your self-confidence you might be comparing yourself to the people you're seeing it's giving you unrealistic expectations of what other people's bodies should look like. I mean, just imagine if you're a 10-year-old boy and you watch porn for an hour a night, every night for the next 10 years. And every time you log on, you're seeing 18-year-old girls with perfect bodies and makeup and breast implants. You're starting to have these expectations of this is what my partner should look like. And not just of what their body should look like, it's kind of what they're performing as well. Because modern hardcore internet porn is very, it's a fantasy. It's not real intimacy. And so, you know, this might get a little graphic for people, but, you know, anal choking, deep throating, slapping, you know, name calling, all of this stuff that is getting highlighted in modern day pornography, because it's the most exciting, it's the most titillating. This is what people are starting to expect. And especially young boys and young girls who are watching this, You know, they're learning that this is what, you know, people want. This is what girls want. And so, you know, another thing I I like to highlight in porn, you never see ever, you never see a a girl saying no to sex. You never see a girl saying, hey, I'm not in the mood, right? So what's that doing? It's giving guys the message that, oh, girls are always in the mood. If I whip out my dick, a girl's always going to want, you know, to get on or whatever. It's also giving that message to young girls that they're not allowed to say no because 10-year-old girls are watching this as well. And so they're learning like, oh, this is how I'm supposed to act. When a guy approaches me and makes a sexual advance, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? And so all the ways it's kind of informing our beliefs around intimacy. I also mentioned the objectification part. You know, there's these really interesting studies that show the regions of the brain that are activated when we're watching porn are the regions that are associated with viewing objects, not the regions of the brain associated with viewing people. So there are certain brain regions wow. that we, you know, have activated when we're talking to a person, and we're kind of, you know, empathy, the mirror neurons, all this stuff is going on. And there are certain regions, regions of our brain that are activated when we're viewing objects. You know, we view a stapler, we view a table. When people are watching porn, those are the regions that are activated. And so not even on a kind of metaphysical or theoretical level are we objectifying people, but on an actual neurological level, porn is causing us to objectify people. So these are kind of, kind of the, some of the theoretical things. But in my own experience, the stuff that I was noticing was a lot of the ways that I was getting hooked on novelty in my sexual life, you know, because when you're addicted to porn every night, you're looking for a new video. You're looking for a new face, a new position, a new scene. And what that's doing is you're getting hooked on this experience of wanting something new. And it's making it very hard to actually enjoy what's right in front of you and really be grateful or deepen your appreciation for the person that that you're with. And so I noticed just the ways it was affecting my relationships as well.
0: That was going to be my next question. How does it impact intimate relationships? Because I'm sure there are many couples out there who probably use porn as a tool in the bedroom, like, and that's totally, you know, each to their own. There are other people who don't. Can you talk to me about if people are doing it? separately and this isn't just men it could be women as well separately not with their partner what are the impacts that that then has on their actual physical relationship and their intimacy overall
1: yeah so first I'll just say that everyone's different and I don't want to make a blanket statement and say nobody should watch porn if somebody's out there and, and is saying hey porn is really helpful for me and my relationship go for it you know it's to each their own
0: Just as we say, you know, not everyone has to give up drinking. Like if you don't have a problem, then it's probably fine. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, That being said, most men, it is not helpful for them. You know, it's very rare to find. And the reason I say that the experience of porn is different for men and women. Women can get addicted. and Women reach out to me all the time telling me about their addiction to porn and how it's influencing them and how they're not, they don't like what they're watching. And so... Definitely women can get addicted and it can be problematic for women, but it's, it's also different. And there are some studies showing that for some women in relationships, the more porn that they watch, it actually helps them open up their sexuality and they feel more sexually interested in their partner. So that can be, you know, one benefit is if, if a woman feels like, oh, this is making me feel more interested in being with my partner, the more porn I watch. And there might be reasons behind that. What the studies show for men is that the more porn that they watch, the less interested they are in their partner, the more isolated they become from their partner, the more judgmental they become of their partner's bodies. You know, they're comparing their partner to the porn stars that they're watching, and they're feeling less satisfied. So there's all these ways that it can impact that. There's also, you know, a lot of times, porn viewing comes with lying and hiding. You know, hiding the behavior, which can cause a lot of problems in the relationship as well. It's a very thin line to to use it in a healthy way, and I think most people are served by cutting it out altogether. Uh, but it, it can just really cause, and, you know, there's also betrayal, like for some women, if their partner, if a man watches porn, then it's, you know, it feels like they're cheating on them. and And that can cause a lot of problems as well.
0: What then defines, an addict when it comes to porn you know because people often ask me "What, what makes you an alcoholic the same thing could be asked with this question what makes somebody an avid porn user versus a porn addict if there is such a difference
1: yeah this is a great question I'm happy we're talking about it addiction is a spectrum you know and there's no it's not like a oh, okay, once you've reached this threshold, now you're an addict and just below that threshold, nah, that's okay. You know, it's similar to alcohol. It's like, there's no real hard and fast line of like, oh, well, well, three drinks, now you're an alcoholic, but 2.75 drinks, that's fine, right? It's kind of like, you can either embrace addiction as being this very open-ended spectrum term, or just get rid of the term addiction altogether and say, ask the question, is this causing problems in my life? Is this habit of mine having consequences that are harming me or holding me back in some way? That's the better question because for some people it's ruining their life. They're, ended, they're doing illegal things. They're ending up losing their job, going to jail, um, getting involved in very risky behaviors. You know, it can be extreme on that end. For a lot of people that are in the middle, It might not be destroying their life altogether, but it's holding them back from a life that they really love. You know, it's holding them back from real intimacy, real connection. It's holding them back from a a feeling of self-worth and integrity. It could be holding them back just from their career goals, you know, the time and energy. A lot of the people that come to me, they just say how much time and energy they waste on it. That alone can be so damaging hours and hours you know it's just if I put all that time into learning a new skill working on my business you know working on a hobby so all the kind of minor ways that it can really just be this like empty calories that it's like we don't even need and not only that you know it's quite toxic as well so I would say you know if you're out there listening like am I an addict or am I not just let go of the term and say is this causing harm in my life And would I be better off without it?
0: Mm, I love that it's simplified, and it can be used across such a wide range of different vices. It doesn't really matter what it is. Hey,
1: exactly. And that's the thing. It's it's like for all addictions, just to ask yourself, like, okay, I don't have to say, am I a sugar addict or am I a Netflix addict? It's like just to just look holistically and saying, okay, this this behavior of mine is bringing some benefits. It's making me it's helping me relax at the end of the day but are the consequences outweighing the benefits here
0: such a simple tool to apply to any given circumstance so jeremy i'd love to talk a little bit more about your recovery from porn addiction and when i when we were emailing back and forth i i asked you well what's your sobriety date or what's your the date that you gave up and you said it's a bit of a complicated answer. Would you mind sharing that for the audience? Because I think it's really interesting to hear that this isn't necessarily a linear experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you asked the question, when is my sobriety date? And I had to think and I was like, well, I don't really know because for one, I don't keep track of it. You know, I know some people are like, okay, this is my date, you know, 10 years sober and, and this is the date and I haven't touched a drop of alcohol since. And for me with porn, it's it's much more complicated. Um I will say, I think it was May 17th, 2011. It was on my 25th birthday. I was in India and I could go into this story, but essentially it was it was actually very easy to remember because it was on my birthday that I had this experience of kind of waking up in a pool of my own sweat after like a porn binge and just thinking like, what am I doing with my life? Uh, and that was the start of, of maybe four or five, it might have been six years where I didn't look at porn a single time. Uh, and that was the start of my recovery journey. Um, and so in some ways, you know, May 17, 2011 is when this all really started for me.
0: And at that time, did did you get any support there? Or was it just cold turkey? I'm doing this on my own. How did you manage that? Yeah. Somebody listening that's maybe contemplating it? like, What did that look like?
1: I, I went the hard route of again, because I mentioned, even after I broke free, it took me six years to to open up about it. And so I did it on my own. And I don't recommend anyone doing that. I was very fortunate, you know, have kind of the good karma, some people might say of just like, being in the right place at the right time with the right interests. I, you know, I was in India, I was getting interested in Buddhist philosophy and meditation. And I was really kind of motivated. I had this you know, three months in India where I got to go on these silent retreats and explore my mind. And that was such a launching pad for me that enabled me to do this work on my own. And I became so passionate about meditation and and Buddhist philosophy that on my own, I was able to do it. But I would not recommend that route for anyone, you know, learning how to be vulnerable. If I had learned how to be vulnerable sooner, I could have healed so much quicker and easier and gotten support that i needed earlier on so to not try to do it on your own um it can be done it's just it's hard and i wouldn't recommend it so for me it was on my own it was a lot of meditation a lot of uh, of going on retreats understanding my mind and we can talk later about the method that i use to break free like what i see as really important in recovery but just to get back to this question of my sobriety date um You know, over the past, you know, five, six years, there's been a handful of times where I've acted out with porn. And especially with porn, where there's a lot of gray areas, you know, some is, you know, it's obvious, okay, I'm on a porn website. Um, Some is, you know, what we might call edging behavior, where it's a little bit of a gray area, like, oh, I'm, I'm clicking on this YouTube link, because I'm kind of seeing this person who looks very attractive, and I'm kind of fantasizing a little bit about that. So it, it's a hard line for some and I know some people have two dates. They have a date for porn sobriety and a, a date for edging sobriety. Like when was the last time I, I used something in a pornographic way, even if it's not really porn per se. Um, so for me, you know, I'm honest about the fact that maybe once a year, I'll kind of slip up and I'll be in a bad spot and, and I'll act out with porn. And I think I really try to emphasize that it's not the end of the world. It's okay if you, if you slip up. That The more important thing is how quickly you can get back on track. Because I see so many people, if you're too focused on your date and the streak, then the moment you relapse or have a slip up, it's like, well, I have to start at zero now. Okay, well, I might as well just give up completely. I don't want to be on day one. And what I like to tell people is that your total time free from your substance is more important than the streak. You know, if you have seven years clean from, from porn and then you have one day where you slip up and then you get back on track the next day, it's not that those seven years don't mean anything. It's not like your day one of sobriety. I mean, it might be day one of sobriety, but it's not day one of recovery. You know, it's like recovery is all the inner work that we're doing to break free from addiction and to cultivate a deeper, richer life that we feel good about. So that's why, you know, for me, it's like, if if you're out there, you know, find what works for you. For some people being really strict with that date, and they want to hold on to that, it's great. And if you slip up, you know, just get back on track and don't worry too much, you know.
0: I love that because you don't lose all of the knowledge that you've gained over the period of recovery, do you? Like that doesn't go away. And so knowing that you can get back straight away, like the very next day you can start again rather than falling into a spiral. I, I would love to know in those moments of slipping, does the shame come back or have you sort of superseded that?
1: It's a, it's a fascinating question. So I, I talk about sh- shame is such a huge um topic in recovery and particularly porn and sex addiction, right? So we talked about why it's a bit more shameful. And I think one of the things I I bring up a lot is it's important to understand that shame is actually healthy. Like we need healthy shame. We don't want to let go of shame completely. We do want to let go of toxic shame. Toxic shame is that feeling of I'm a bad person. I'm broken. I can't be loved. That's toxic shame. Healthy shame, on, on the contrary, is this feeling of, hey, that thing I did was unskillful. That thing I did was not in alignment with my values, and I wish I hadn't done it, and I want to do better. That's healthy shame, and we need healthy shame. There's a, a, one of my favorite teachings in Buddhism. There's these two mental qualities, hiri and otapa. They're called the two guardians of the world, and they're the only two mental qualities that are both wholesome. Like they're skillful, they're good mental qualities, but they're unpleasant to experience. They're the only two. Every other wholesome mental quality is pleasant, like love, compassion, patience, perseverance. These all feel good. But moral shame and moral dread are the two wholesome mental qualities that are unpleasant to experience. And they keep us from doing bad things in the world. They they protect us from causing harm by reminding us that hey this doesn't feel good so i just want to say that that like shame is important and so when i act out when i slip up there is some of that shame and more and more it's healthy shame it's like oh this is not how i want to act this is not how i want to show up in the world and more and more it's not slipping into toxic shame you know that's a big part of healing from porn addiction is letting go of toxic shame and recognizing hey so i watched porn i'm not a horrible person. If you're watching this and you you look at porn and you're dealing with porn addiction and trying to recover it, the most important thing I can tell you right now is you are not a bad person for watching porn. Like that is the most important message for for people to hear because so many people feel like a horrible person when they do it.
0: Mm, and whether that's porn addiction, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, you know, it, what I always say is. I was taught very early on in my recovery, I'm not a bad person trying to be good. I'm a sick person trying to get well. So just letting go of that idea that we're bad, that we're inherently bad is so, so vital to recovery. Yeah. Jeremy, let's talk about the recovery method then. I know that meditation and mindfulness has been a huge part of your own journey, but how do you help guide people through porn addiction recovery in the work that you do today?
1: Yeah, for me, you know, one of the most important things was was mindfulness and, and particularly, you know, this flavor of mindfulness that comes from Buddhist philosophy and kind of ancient wisdom. You know, part of mindfulness is just being aware, being aware of what's happening in your life, because a lot of addiction is unconscious behavior. You know, we're not even aware of reaching out for the substance or logging on to the porn website. It just happens and we find ourselves in the midst of it. Because a lot of it is these conditioned habit patterns. You know, a big turning point for me was learning about the neuroscience of addiction and the neuroscience of craving, of of lust, what was going on on a neurological level. And a lot of these are just conditioned habits that we've built into our life over years or decades. You know, with addiction, you have to be able to see these moments as they're arising because... Part of the problem is when you're already, when your brain is hijacked, when you're hooked by this feeling of, of acting out, a lot of the time it's too late. You know, when you're already pouring the drink, when you've already taken the first sip, it's too late. When you're already on a porn website, you know, let's say you've been clean for, for 30 days and then you find yourself on Pornhub, it's very hard at that point to deescalate and, and back off. And so we have to get much better about noticing these moments, you know, before they've gone too far so that we can take appropriate action while it's still building up. You know, I love this metaphor of like a cartoon snowball at the top of a hill. You know, you start rolling the snowball down the hill and by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, it's this huge snow boulder, right? If you can catch it when it's at the top of the hill, then you can work with it. So that's really important is is doing that. And what meditation is, it's training the mind and cultivating neural pathways and cultivating mental qualities that are helpful and wholesome. And uncultivating or de-strengthening, we would say in neurological terms, de-strengthening the neural pathways that are leading to unskillful behavior. So if we're experiencing lust or craving, you know, that's a neural pathway that we've strengthened over years. And through mindfulness, we can actually notice like, oh, lust is arising right now. Can I instead cultivate some curiosity? Can I instead cultivate some compassion? And can I start to lean in the right direction? You know, there's this famous uh, parable about the Native American grandfather talking to his granddaughter by the fire. And he says, have you heard the story of the two wolves? No. No. Oh, oh, it's it's a great, great story. So it's, there's this Native American grandfather sitting by the fire talking to his granddaughter, and he says, you know, inside of you there is a, a great battle going on between two wolves, and one wolf represents everything good. It represents love and peace and harmony and compassion and patience, and the other wolf represents everything evil, greed and hatred and, war and enmity and all these horrible things and this battle is going on inside of you and it's going on inside of each and every one of us and the granddaughter looks up to the grandfather and said which wolf was going to win and he says the one you feed and it's like it's not this fairy tale ending it's like oh the good wolf always wins it doesn't you know in some cases the bad wolf wins and it's about what are we feeding right are we feeding long like craving and lust and you know this hunger are we feeding anger and bitterness and jealousy or are we feeding you know these these wholesome qualities and this all works because of neuroplasticity and so you know for me a big part of recovery is training the mind being more aware of what's going on and starting to train the mind in these wholesome directions on top of that, another component of, of Buddhist philosophy, and, you know, this is just, it's not just, Buddhism doesn't lay claim to this, it's everywhere, but self-compassion, you know, learning how to be compassionate towards yourself. So, those are some some key things that I start to work on with my clients and, and things that were really important for me.
0: Oh, Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing that beautiful story and for sharing those pieces of wisdom and advice. I can't underestimate. I can't stress how much mindfulness has played a part in my own recovery journey. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. There is one final question that I have for you today. And it's a question that I love to finish on with all of my guests who join me here on behind the smile. That question is Jeremy, what are your three non-negotiables in your life today that allow you to live happy, joyous and free?
1: The first two that are coming to me. So one is we might just you might call it fitness, you might call it um, exercise, um, health, but really taking care of the foundation. You know, I used to be kind of saying that okay, meditation is the most important thing, and you've got to control your mind and train your mind and there's in your mind. And over time, it's really shifted. I really think that one of the most important things is taking care of your body. It has such mm. a huge impact on recovery and mental health and well being that to me, like movement and physical health and fitness and nutrition and sleep are the foundations that you build that recovery off of. It's you can recover while you're not practicing any of those things, but it's just so challenging, you know? Um, mm. and, and not only that, fitness and movement and exercise, it's what brings me joy. Also, I love playing sports and going rock climbing. So it's not just like, okay, this is what keeps me healthy. It's also what brings me happiness and joy. So that's one is kind of fitness. The second I would say is community and and people. You know, I am introverted. I'm a very introverted person. It was just New Year's Eve and I I went to bed at 11 p.m. because I don't like staying out till 2 in the morning. Yay!
0: Um, i was in bed at 9 30
1: go us yeah yeah um and so i'm introverted but i also recognize that you know we need people and it's part of what makes life worth living is community and the people we surround ourselves with and the people that support us and the people that we support you know having close friends people you can really open up to and be vulnerable with and And laugh together you know there's there's almost no substitute for that so fitness um people community and then i guess you know like some form of and this gets back to the meditation but really you might call it self-awareness you might call it self-compassion you might call it knowing yourself or or mindfulness but just some aspect of make it so there's okay there's this samurai poem I think that something goes, something like, I make my mind my best friend. And so I guess a oh, non-negotiable is like having a good relationship with yourself. Like your self-talk, you know, how you treat yourself. That You, you have to have that. You know, if you are, you can have everything in the world. You could have six-pack abs and a billion dollars and the best friends in the world and living in the most beautiful place. But if your inner critic is the one driving the show, if you are beating yourself up, you're going to have a miserable life. And so part Absolutely. of this work of recovery is like learning how to be your own best friend, learning how to love yourself and care for yourself. And it doesn't mean that you're like a cocky asshole that thinks you're the, the shit, right? It's sometimes you, you have to call yourself out in your bullshit and say, hey, buddy, I know you can do better than that. And sometimes it's self-compassion and saying it's okay. Like you're going to be okay and I care for the fact that you're suffering. But just being your own best friend. Mm,
0: That's beautiful. And just nurturing that connection with self. But um, more than anything, you're so, so right. It's like perception is projection, right? So you can have all those things on the outside. But if the conditioning of your internal world isn't being looked after, then you're not going to feel good. And that, you know, at the end of the day, like that inner peace, that inner contentment all starts from the inside out. A beautiful note to end on, Jeremy. Now, if people want to track you down, find out more about you, where can they go?
1: I would say my my podcast uh, is probably the best one. And so that is Unhooked. Uh, you can find it on Spotify, Apple, anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's it's for people with all kinds of addictions. You know, it's focused on porn addiction, but as we all know addiction is addiction and recovery is recovery and it's all related you know it's all the same kind of stuff going on on the inside um so I, it's really quite a, an open podcast for men and women and people dealing with all kinds of uh, of issues um instagram is also good jeremy lipkowitz on instagram i sometimes post on there um quotes and motivational things and Um, Those are the two places I would recommend going to check out.
0: Brilliant. I'll make sure I pop both of those in the episode show notes. Jeremy, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for joining me here today and being a part of the show. It's
1: been a pleasure. Anytime.
0: Take care. Bye for now. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.